Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast on the AEI podcast channel. I'm your host, Tal Fortgang. Today, we revisit a short but prescient lecture from Yale computer scientist, polymath, and former AEI fellow, David Galerter. Galerter's academic and personal interests are the stuff of legend. His repertoire comprises politics, parallel computing, Judaism and Hebrew literature, Darwinism, and the visual arts. He's been a prolific writer and artist, a professor of computer science, all for more than 30 years now. Today we revisit his 1996 lecture, New Institutions for a New Cultural Establishment, on the destruction and construction of cultural institutions. This all in light of a death and a birth. The death is the recent passing of Sir Roger Scruton, the great philosopher who helped revive and shape institutionalist thinking among Anglo-American conservatives. Sir Roger was eulogized in the New York Times this past week by Princeton professor Robbie George, who noted there that Scruton believed in unchosen and in that sense natural obligations, duties we have simply by virtue of being human and being born into a certain family, a community, or nation. We do not come into the world as bare individuals who can develop an identity entirely from scratch. This, in a sense, is conservative institutionalism. Human beings are both fundamentally free and unfree. We can choose to an extent the kind of people we want to be, and central planning or coercion should be avoided to the utmost extent. But at the same time, we are and ought to be shaped by institutions, chosen and unchosen. Valuable institutions of civil society, writes George, paraphrasing Sir Roger and his ideological forebear, Edmund Burke, should play the lead role in forming new generations in the virtues people need to thrive and contribute to society. We hope that bringing Galerter's lecture to the forefront of current political conversations will help honor Sir Roger's memory and keep his Burkean institutionalism alive. The good news is that a recent book is doing just that a book from my boss here at AEI, Dr. Yuval Levin. In A Time to Build, Dr. Levin makes the case that thinking of our country as a vast open space filled with individuals who are having trouble linking arms is a mistake. It's more fruitful to think of the United States and the Malays in our social and political lives as a crisis of institutions. The problem is that in our era, participants in various American institutions, from Congress to campus to church, increasingly see their institutions as opportunity to be performative rather than formative. Trustworthy institutions are those that mold trustworthy people. Think of the military, the one American institution we trust more than any other. And untrustworthy ones are those used as platforms for individuals to signal their virtue and importance. Not to detract from Dr. Levin's work, but Galerter's lecture from nearly 25 years ago shows that this is not a very recent problem and conservatives have had to grapple before with loss of institutional power, if not erosion of the value of the institutions themselves. Galerter himself proposes that now is the time to build, and specific institutions that he thinks would help foster greater virtue and political nuance in an increasingly hegemonic environment. Galerter's lecture is delivered with great humor and stinging rebukes to the cultural hegemons of the late 20th century. I found it both entertaining and insightful, and I hope you will too. Which reminds me, if you like the Bradley Lectures podcast and want to support this project, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you may find it. Leave us a good rating and review. 
follow us on Twitter at Bradley Lectures and tweet at us with suggestions for how we can improve. And last but not least, please tell your friends about our work. With that, here's David Galerter's 1996 Bradley Lecture, New Institutions for a New Cultural Establishment. The most fundamental ideal value that has informed Western civilization, the ideal we cherish, the ideal we uh, call upon most often, the ideal we um, appeal to most often in justifying whatever it is we want to justify, namely uh, freedom. According to Freedom House, who tracks um, the um, spread and diffusion of freedom from year to year, uh, these are wonderful times for anyone who believes in and cherishes freedom. Of the 4.5 billion people in the world, the majority now declare themselves, or their leaders declare themselves, to be for freedom. And um, it's a time to celebrate, one would think. Uh, it's a time to bask in the glow of victory. Um, but there are some disturbing signs, or at least some signs which we ought to take a closer look at. One is reported by Freedom House itself in its most recent um, annual surveys. It points out that there's a disturbing tendency towards some instability in the um, uh, ratings. Countries seem to pop up and down in, the, uh, in their one to seven scale of freedom. Um, one year a country seems to be designated very free. The next year it seems as if they're out of the running and gone back to bad ways. This is an instability. There's a problem in Eastern Europe where after the initial euphoria, things are not going quite the way we thought it was going to go. First thing several nations use with their their freedom to do is to sort of um, beat up on the um, freedom of other people and the disaster in um, Yugoslavia is only one such case. And there was what happened in Vienna earlier this year, the disaster in Vienna. That conference, for those of you who didn't know, sort of um, earlier this year, was called by the United Nations, great expense. All the nations of the world were together and um, for another, a second great declaration of um, human rights to sort of consolidate the first great declaration in the 40s. And in many ways, this conference was almost like a, a sort of um, victory parade, um, sort of unfinished business in the 40s to be taken care of, uh, and uh, as the, uh, one expected the whole world to turn up uh, to celebrate freedom and to not just celebrate it, but to express commitment in a renewed declaration of human rights. Well, you all read the newspapers in this town, and you may know what happened in Vienna. The West was taken completely by surprise, because what the West went, and were the major Western countries, including our own, went quite unprepared because we went expecting to, you know, be pat on the shoulder and said, you know, I mean, there, there, you won, isn't it wonderful? Instead, what they confronted was the Bangkok Declaration. <laughs> the Bangkok Declaration is one of those strange, strange documents, strange in the sense of it is one of the oddest assortment of bedfellows who um, brought it together. The Bangkok Declaration was a, um, 
basically a statement which had been prepared in a previous conference by several non-Western countries in preparation for the um, uh, Vienna meeting. And the bedfellows involved China, who led this um, group, Iran, for heaven's sake, anti-communist um, Iran, <laughs> pro-capitalist Indonesia, communist Cuba, the strangest assortment of people. Um, what they had in common was a strong opposition to the whole drift and sentiment and thrust of the Vienna meeting. And they effectively sort of subverted the whole intent of, the, uh, uh, of that conference. So even though freedom, you may think, has won, it certainly didn't won, win that round. Now, as a student of freedom, I followed all of this very carefully. And I noted the arguments which were used by the, let us call them the Bangkok group. Their argument is that, first, freedom is not a universal value. Freedom is a Western value. And the assumption of universalism is erroneous. They have no proof that this is a universal human value, a commitment. And the call to human rights is, is, an eth is ethnocentric and presumptuous on the part of the West, which is attempting to impose its value on the rest of the world. That was one, one argument or points to that effect. It's a Western concept that is not universal, that further, there are other values which are just as important as freedom, and perhaps more important. And that, indeed, perhaps the most important human right is not the rights which the West insists on defending, freedom of speech, individual uh, respect for property, participatory democracy, and so on, but the right to development. And so they insisted that this declaration um, was not only untimely, but um, a form of Western imperialism. And the result of this extraordinary conference was that instead of expanding on the original declaration, which everyone expected, the West considered itself lucky that indeed it got away with what it did, which was in fact, if anything, a more restricted definition original declaration. Very strange situation at a time like this, at the end of communism and so on. Now, I, as you can imagine, having spent the last uh, decade and more than a decade working on the problem of freedom, was fascinated with all of this, but very ambivalent and really had a real problem. I tell you what my problem was. My problem was that although I knew there was a great deal of cynicism behind these arguments, uh, of a gang of very authoritarian leaders, in fact, um, seeing this as a way of, um, if you like, delegitimizing an ideology which threatened their position. Unfortunately, the arguments were largely correct. That was my problem. <laughs> you often as policy people and so on, face a situation where you know your opponent is a bastard, but, but is, is the arguments being used to support a, 
uh, an unjust or grossly uh, uh, unfair situation were correct. Because the truth is that it is a Western concept. Now, we don't tend to think so because of two assumptions which we tend to make when we talk about freedom. I think it's very important we're aware of this. It's especially important that America now be aware of these assumptions. One, is, one assumption has to do with this sort of philosophical psychology of freedom. It's best expressed in a great, great phrase of Locke. This is written in the hearts of men. The assumption is that freedom, we're born with freedom. It's part of the human condition to be free. Um, that it's it, it, to, to be human then is to desire freedom. It's written in our hearts. It's a wonderful term. It's part of the essential ideology of the West, that you're born with it. But know the implication of that. Know the implication of that assumption. If it's something you're born with, it's stupid to ask where it came, where it really come from. You just assume it's there in, as part of the human condition. Little babies have it. Just let them grow up. They'll start saying, wow, I want to be free, if it's written in the heart of babies. Right? There's also a sociopolitical assumption in our discourse on freedom, which informs a great deal of our policies and our attitudes, which, to some extent, is very closely related to the psychological, philosophical assumption. It's the fact that all societies would desire freedom if only they had the opportunity to express it. In other words, take any society, take any non-Western society, China, uh, Indonesia, uh, Algeria, that the reason why you do not witness freedom, since obviously it's written in their hearts, is because of repressive measures and institutions. And therefore, all you have to do is to remove these, and freedom will come welling up. That's another fundamental assumption, a universalist assumption in our attitudes. Well, th this is essential for all values which we hold and which we cherish. Uh, but from the point of view of a comparative sociology, a comparative historian, the first thing you note, if you make the most cursory review of human societies in history through time, is that these assumptions simply have no foundation whatever, in fact. None. Um, the vast majority of human societies, in the course of their long histories, have not demonstrated, and one would expect that at some time, during some little period, some little window of, uh, of history would indicate in these other societies a sort of passion for freedom. There's no evidence that outside of the West, until contact with the West, that this is ever the case. Indeed, etymological research points out the fact that in the vast majority of languages before contact with the West, there is not even a word for freedom. All the languages of the world now have a word for freedom, but that's under Western linguistic pressure. I mean, the dictionary writer turns up and said, well, you know, the typical missionary and the typical sort of um, situation, having spent his five years and going back home and doing his dictionary, tell me your word for freedom. The native says, well, what's that? He said, obviously, well, he wouldn't say it's written in your heart, but he'd say something to that effect. So you've got to have a word for it. 
eventually, of course, people will come up with a word. Now, what's very interesting, and what I've done along with some of my more linguistically oriented students, is to see what the, what the literal meaning of the word which people come up with when they're asked, well, by the typical dictionary writer or missionary or whatever, well, come on, you've got a word for freedom. Tell me what it is. I mean, yeah, I don't have time to waste here. Um, it's, it's very intriguing. In the Japanese case, which is my favorite, is, is, is typical. The literal meaning of the Japanese word is licentiousness. Because that's when asked, you know, well, tell me first, what is this word you freedom, you Westerners have? What's meaning is, and I'll try to find a word for it. People usually, and the same is true of Chinese and other languages. Well, as a comparative sociologist, in historian, I mean, having seen that, my next question was, my next problem is to ask the kind of question which, in spite of the hundreds and thousands of works written, and most people uh, on the subject of freedom have been asked. Most people thought I was losing it attempting to write a book on freedom since, you know, there's, there's not much to be gained um, in, 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 in um, pursuing a subject which has been picked over so long. But the problem is these fundamental questions were not asked. If it's not universal, if it's not, as our dearly beloved Locke insists, written on the hearts of men, where did it come from? And I w that basically is the question I've been trying to answer for the past 12 years. Where did it come from? And um, as I found in the West, why was it so uh, peculiarly a Western value? What form is it taking? Now, I'm going to share with you tonight the, um, the first set of answers I've, I've given. Uh, where did it come from? In the course of asking, of course, where did it come from, I also answer what it is. My approach is not that of the philosopher um, to begin by um, defining it in prescriptive terms but more a Wittgensteinian one in which I seek for the central tendencies as it emerged from its origins through time. I will, however, begin by, at the end, so to speak, um, because it's important to put things in perspective. A century ago, Lincoln asked the question, as many of you know, um, or complained, rather, that the world has never had a good definition of the word liberty. And um, the situation is a little better now, uh, I hope, but uh, many people still find it problematic. And the problem is that people often look to philosophers um, rather than look to what I've done, which is my question is, what does the ordinary person, an extraordinary person, what do they think about freedom? What does it mean? Uh, and I pursue this course of action today. I mean, I turn, I read American philosophers on freedom and political scientists, but my main databases or the questions I've asked of the, the man on the Boston um, omnibus um, to sort of free associate of what he means by freedom. And that's just as important as um, what um, your um, most distinguished philosopher may think. And what this is what, what I've tried to do. Uh, what have I found? It's a single concept, but it's a composite one. It's a configuration of three inextricably related ideas. Uh, it's a triad, and I've used I hope effectively, the metaphor of a musical chord to define what I mean by freedom is a triad. There's three notes which you can listen to separately, but which constitute 
uh, 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 in a sense, can be struck together, uh, uh, constituting a configuration. And what's remarkable is that that configuration, that chordal unity, has always been there, even though one or the other note maybe emphasizes a more um, fundamental. And what are these three notes? These three closely associated ideas, which have always been there. First, the one which you're familiar, most familiar with, what I call simple personal freedom, the condition of not being coerced or restrained by another person in doing something desired on one side, and the conviction that one can do as one pleases, uh, subject to uh, other people's desires. And both sides of the coin, the negative and the positive, have always been essential to the Western personal notion of freedom, although philosophers, as you know, ever since um, Berlin's celebrated article have um, made their careers and unmade their careers over this question of negative and positive freedom. Um, the second element of freedom, the second note, um, is, one may use several terms for it, organic, I call it sovereignal. Uh, this kind of freedom assumes a hierarchical ordering of human relationships in which power is concentrated at the top. And the most free person is the person who is most capable of um, exercising his will. And if you think about it for a minute, it makes sense. You're free to the degree that you can do things, that you exercise power, that you're able to realize your will. Traditionally, historically, your will over others. And there's never any contradiction seen, although we now consider it almost obscene, um, in the idea that one is free to the degree that one can dominate other persons. This was the dominant view among the Greeks, uh, as anyone who's read Thucydides or any um, um, Greek of the Greek elite thinkers will know. And it remained a central idea in the Western notion of freedom right up to modern times. It's, it's, it's an, it's <laughs> I have real problems with this with audiences, especially since I don't usually have enough time to sort of get into this, the details of it. Because in America in particular, we've rejected this. We've wiped this view of freedom out of the semantic field, let us say, put it that way, so much that people are often shocked to learn. And in fact, often uh, want to shoot the messenger uh, by suggesting that I'm the one who's inventing this fiction about freedom. In fact, I'm merely reporting what was the case for, for, for over 2,000 years of Western history. The idea that one is free to the degree that one has power and one can exercise power over others, as well as exercising one power of one society over others. The Athenians thought that their good part of their freedom was their freedom to dominate others. And um, the Romans had that view too. And it's been an important part of uh, the Western idea, until modern times. It wasn't until the Enlightenment that people began to be embarrassed about that idea. Um, the third element of freedom, the third note in the card, is, of course, what I, civic freedom, democracy. The, the capacity of all adult members to participate equally in the political life of one society. Um, equality in law and governance, and participation. Um, these three relationships have, for most of the history of freedom, been seen as being tightly held together. This point is very important to bear in mind in light of what I have to say later on about what happened in the modern world, uh, especially in the 19th century. They are also 
intimately linked, conceptually. Um, there's a simple way of showing conceptually how these three ideas, these three notes in this cultural chord fits together. And it's the concept of power. Power, surprising how it may sound, is central to the notion of freedom. So if you look at the three notes again, we are free to the degree that others do not exercise power over us. We only exercise power over ourselves. We're free from the power of others. We're free, however, to the degree that we are empowered and have power to do what we want, to realize our will, to realize our goals, to realize ourselves. So we have freedom to exercise power, including, as I said, for a long period of human uh, uh, Western history, power over others, but now we express it more in terms of empowerment, that is, power over ourselves. Okay? And thirdly, we're free to the degree that we share in the collective power, which as a group we create together in forming a government. Three ideas are related conceptually. Now, so powerful ideas, powerful ideas, both in individually and in their configuration. And it's important to understand that for most of its history, this configuration, this chord, was a peculiarly Western one. Uh, how did the West construct this idea? And why was it peculiarly a Western one? Now, many of you, more conservative, you're traditional, you may be pleased to hear that it was a Western vibe, but you won't be so pleased to hear why uh, it was so. But history is of that nature. Um, the, um, my, in searching for an answer to this question, why, how did this strange set of ideas come about in the first place? Especially personal freedom. Uh, and, and think about it for a minute. If you can sort of conduct an imaginary experiment, get out of your American cultural mode and think about it from the point of view of a non-Westerner. It's a pretty strange thing to say that the most important thing to me is that no one is uh, that I'm free from others. For most of human society, that's considered a crazy, dangerous idea. In most human cultures, for most of human history, what people wanted was to be integrated into society, to be protected by more powerful people. And the idea that you want to be away from people, isolated, independent by yourself, is considered a damn dangerous and a crazy idea. And when you think about it in its most negative form, that you're just free to the degree that, you know, in a purely negative sense, no content, whatever, that you just go around, someone goes around saying, wow, whoopee, isn't it great? Not for, for anyone, not to exercise any constraint over me. Think about it for a minute uh, in non-Western terms, if you can. That's a strange idea. One of the things which comparative sociologists do is to make you see how the familiar is very strange. And freedom is a very strange idea to most human societies, which emphasize integration, protection, being in a network of kinship relations, being in a web of relationships, a Chinese clan. So the, the importance of filial connection, the importance of the harmony of heaven and earth, those kind of ideas. Honor, sort of fighting for one's group, glory, dying for one's country, as the Japanese did until, of course, they met the Americans. These ideas are the powerful ideas which informed human culture. 
And in that context, the idea that one of the most sublime things to have is to say, I'm not constrained by others, is a damn crazy idea. So the more you think about it, the more it becomes a serious problem, explaining what is so familiar to you that you've never once asked yourself the question, isn't this an odd idea? Okay. And its origins is odder still. My argument is that the three basic notes of freedom emerged in the experience, which is slavery. The institution of slavery preceded freedom. And in fact, if you think about it, uh, the more and more one thinks about it, and I've spent the last more than 20 years thinking about it, you see why slavery becomes so important in defining freedom. The slave is someone who's socially dead, legally dead, quintessentially one who's uprooted, torn from the bosom of his or her, usually her, um, community, and incorporated in another society, is the surrogate of another, has no will, the property of another can be bought, sold, in 99% of cases can be killed with impunity. Um, this is the strange, perverse situation which immediately generates um, uh, 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 the value which, um, which is freedom. You can see how this is done if you think for a moment. Precisely because and only after being placed in this perverse condition does someone desire, desire simply to be removed from the constraint of another and make that an ideal. An ideal which the, 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 the slaveholder is quite willing to, for his own self-interest, to cultivate. Because the slaveholder has a problem, a typical problem of motivation. You bring someone in and tell them they're socially dead, they're nothing, nothing. Obviously, you ask them to work for you, you're going to have a problem motivating such a person. But there's a self-correcting, building self-correction in the institution. The motivation is obvious. You've created a socially dead person, so you say to them, well, look, if you really work well and hard, you will be made free. Meaning simply that you'll no longer be, uh, I'll no longer be, have absolute power over you. Not much else. And that, in that idea, in that simple experience, was the notion of freedom. But also, that slave, slavery did something else, two other things. It created isolated absolute power of one person over another, which is unusual in human societies. And it also did a third thing. It created the idea of the native group being free. Now, in traditional, typical tribal situations, whether you're you know, a Dane or a Viking or a German or an Igbo or what have you, there's no sense that you're free at all. I mean, that idea becomes only meaningful when you bring into your armed society a group of people who are defined as slaves, and then then the new, the native, becomes, in, a, in contradistinctive terms, free. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyons and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. 
and stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.